Hello, Sublation Media viewers and listeners and hopefully future readers. It's me again, Douglas Lane. Um, in this episode of Pop the Left, uh, I'm not going to be present. Instead, you'll see Stephen Bertram Lee and Deep State Cuba discuss the situation in Ukraine. Um, in the second half, they discuss what they think the possible outcomes could be uh, for the Ukrainian people, for Zelensky, for Russia. And for the world. So if you would like to support us on Patreon, you'll get access to that second podcast. It's a very good idea. Right now, um, our support on Patreon is the major line of revenue for the company. So as we get started publishing the magazine, getting books under contract and printed, uh, and producing more and more videos and podcasts, our support from people like yourself... Uh, through Patreon, is vitally important. So please do sign up to uh, get the second half of this podcast and to get all the great content we provide for patrons only. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're going to be doing an episode on the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, we did an episode broadly on the situation in Ukraine and Russia, as well as kind of left statuses towards international relations uh, a couple of months ago now. And as history has been happening, as decades have been happening in months, uh, what we said back then is not necessarily what we expected. I didn't really give that many predictions of what I thought was going to happen. Um, but we're going to begin the show by talking about what we expected to happen and what we didn't. So I think generally, apart from predicting the war was going to happen, my predictions of generally just being almost so wrong that if you just reverse them, they'd be right. <laughs> like what so I thought, the traditional CIA role, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what I thought would happen was that Ukraine, uh, that Russia would win a conventional victory, uh, get basically what they wanted on the kind of conventional battlefield. They would, but they would be hamstrung by sanctions and they would face a very large insurgency in Ukraine. This has turned out to basically be the opposite of the case, where Russia has had a great deal of trouble with the conventional things, but they haven't really had that much trouble in the sanctions. And in the areas they've taken, they haven't had very many problems with insurgency. That's exactly, that's exactly right. My take was that the conventional um, advantages that Russia enjoyed number of troops, sophistication of weapons, um, together with the fact that Russia chose the venue, the offensive strategy, the timing, all looked like it would advantage their conventional war fighting. And I expected to see um, Ukrainian forces withering under Russian fire and especially the um, sort of regular military that isn't comprised of um, far right groups expected that morale there would break fairly quickly. And that those 7% of forces in Crimea during 2014 defected to Russia. And so far the figure is zero out of hundreds of thousands this time. Yes. um, Basically we, uh, we were. I was wrong about how the 
um, the competence, effectiveness, and cohesion of the Russian strategy and Russian forces, as well as the um, the willingness to fight and the capability to, to organize an effective defense on the part of um, Ukrainian forces. Because while in Donbass, one particular reason um, why Russia hasn't made greater advances is because far-right militia units, um, you know, we should be clear, these are regular units within different parts of the Ukrainian security apparatus. A lot of them are in the National Guard, for instance. Some of them are in the Interior Ministry. But these are regular... thing called the Ukrainian Voluntary Army that was formed out of right sector. They were just basically yes. in the structure, but paid by the Ukrainian government. Exactly. They're paid by the Ukrainian government and they have access to weapons through the Ukrainian government. Um, they are faster than regular units. Yes. And the um, and so it's not there's nothing extra legal um, about these formations. They can't really be described as militia uh, in that sense. They're military formations of the Ukrainian state. Um, You're but, also with various far, far right parties. Exactly. The, um, but the far right element, the f- ideological uh, commitment of those units, because you choose which unit you want to sign up for, right? They're, um, it's not like you get libs being assigned to Azov by mistake or, you know, some kind of lottery system. Yeah. Uh, so if you belong, if you choose to join one of these units as opposed to one of the more innocuous uh, professional military units, um, then you want to fight. And so the esprit in those far-right uh, formations, Donbass, um, is, has been much stronger and could yeah, and be predicted to be much stronger. We've got a very, point, a very good point of comparison to compare kind of the marine units that were in Mariupol, which have now at this point largely surrendered, compared to Azov, which I'm not sure we have any surrenderies from at all. And now they're currently in conditions which you are just the worst I've ever heard, like worse than the last holdouts of like of the Islamic State. Um, in an absolutely horrendous situation, which I mean, I'm not sympathetic, uh, but in an absolutely horrendous situation and still refusing to surrender and still being like a, a real pawn in the Russian side, preventing them from withdrawing what still must be significant military assets from Mariupol. And if you consider... Um what the uh, Ukrainian, uh, what lengths the Ukrainian government and the supporters of these units have gone to try to create some kind of diplomatic pressure and some international sympathy for the holdouts in Azov style. I don't know if you saw, but Azov got called, not called out, shouted out on stage at Eurovision last night. I did not know that, but um, did you know that um, wives and widows of uh, the Azov fighters in Mariupol petitioned the Pope for um, intervention to try to negotiate the um, withdrawal of um, their, you know, their loved ones, their uh, their husbands, these Azov fighters, and this is a left wing Pope, right? Like. They're not Catholic either, right? Yeah, there's there's absolutely no basis. Either. Sorry? They're definitely not Catholic. That's yeah, they're definitely not. As so, have, right sector, I think, have had big conflicts with the Catholic Church in, in, in Western Ukraine. The, um, well, has anybody started referring it to the, referring to it as the 
cuckolith, uh, Catholic, like cuckolith or something. Get get cuck in there somehow. You heard you heard of Azog, right? Yeah. Like like Nazis on the internet who think uh, the that Azog or controlled opposition call them Azog. Like, Azog. <laughs> Zionist occupational government, like a Zionist occupational government. Mm. Lovely. Um, but let's go through kind of the history, history, the kind of events that have happened in the war since the last time we spoke to give like, a general outline to people who haven't been refreshing Twitter as often as I have. Mm-hmm. So right. Russia basically began the war with a broad front attack across basically all the places they could go to apart from the very far west. They Everywhere they, they could reach. The only thing missing. West of Belarus, mm-hmm. the west of Belarus, they attacked exactly. every single angle. They had um, a big success in Kherson Oblast, which they basically took in a week, and then haven't been haven't basically been removed or moved forward or back from that area since then. They tried to encircle Mikolaev on the way to Odessa, but got nowhere with that. Yeah, um, and generally in eastern Luhansk, they made a lot of progress. Um, but generally, they were trying to fight forward to get to Kiev to try and implement regime change, or at least put enough pressure on the Ukrainian government to basically allow peace to happen on their terms. They were trying this, they were trying this, they were having problems with um, terrain, with getting their armored columns forward, just general problems from Ukrainian resistance. Uh, the Ukrainians were blowing up dams and flooding the area. And basically, on April 1st, uh, Russia cut their losses and withdrew from this area. Um, as I said in my Sublation magazine press, this kind of massive defeat for Russia, where they basically withdrew from everywhere apart from Kherson, Kharkov, and Donbass, uh, was concealed by the fact that the media focused on massacres and deaths of civilians that, you, that Russians had committed in this area. Since then, um, Russia's been focused on trying to take the Donbass, so on, uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk region, which are meant to be in Russianized parts of the Luhansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic, which was the official region reason that this war started to kind of resolve the issue of these separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. And also, because of the concentration of right-wing forces in the Donbass, which comes across, uh, which results from the fact that they're the they were the most willing post um, twenty fourteen. Well, the only ones in twenty fourteen. <laughs> Sorry? Basically the only ones that were willing in 2014. Exactly. In 2014, they were the only ones willing to actually go on the offensive in eastern Ukraine, um, let alone, you know, even just standing up to um, to the Russian incursions. And since then, they've formed the backbone of the resistance, the resistance, the, the backbone of the Ukrainian force in um, the Donbass. The, so... You get two officially stated war aims settled if you can resolve um, the the, the Donbass um, Eastern Ukrainian front, which is one: you secure the uh, DPR LPR the People's Republic separatist statelets that nominally are the the reason for uh, Russian intervention, and you also get the denazification that is part of. Um, part of the uh, Russian demands, right? By destroying um, those units, 
you go a long way in uh, being able to credibly state that yes, we've we've taken out at least the most dangerous formations, at least the the, the leadership and the the veterans. Um, I, you make a great p- uh, point that um, while Azov has been taking losses in Donbass, its position in Ukrainian society and its prominent place in the discourse about national resistance against the Russian invasion has helped them recruit to uh, stand up new forces, uh, new units that could potentially offset any losses that they um, they suffer in the yeah, obviously the, the Russian invasion is, is leading to the Nazification of uh, Ukraine, which is one prediction I was, I was sure of from the start and one that's um, certainly coming true. So in the Donbass, Russia's been on the offensive for about a month now, I think, but progress has been very slow. Uh, they've basically They've taken Mariupol, uh, the city in the south. And to be honest, now that I think about it, I don't think the progress in the city was that slow. Uh, but we'll come on to Apostol in a second. Um, in Kherson Oblast, the Ukraine's meant to be in an offensive for about six weeks. But they haven't made any progress at all. While in, Karke- in the Kharkiv Oblast, uh, the Ukrainians have managed eventually after, again, about six weeks of fighting, to push the Russians away from the city center and away from the suburbs of Kharkiv, but still about half the oblast is in Russian hands. And generally, the impression you get <laughs> progresses so slow that just yesterday, this this mapper that I watch, uh, I, I, I have the stuff of, he stopped making daily updates because not enough is changing on the ground every day. So while kind of in Russian media, you kind of have a victorious offensive going on, and in Western media, you have a, a victorious Ukrainian offensive going on. On the ground, not much is changing at the moment. Part of that, too, has to do with the fact that the war has gone on long enough so that the ground is no longer frozen. And you have um, marshy terrain, rivers, lakes, um, all kinds of geographic obstacles that get in the way of the advance of armor and artillery, which has been the basis of both the Russian offensive and the Ukrainian um, forces defending. It's been a very conventional kind of World War II style, um, heavy firepower and large unit maneuver uh, type of conflict. The in rear areas on Russia at the beginning was moving very quickly down um, roads and other transportation corridors and not securing the rear areas, which led to significant losses by um, uh, smaller forces hitting um, convoys. Hi there. I'm going to interrupt this conversation in order to remind you about GCAS. GCAS is the Global Center for Advanced Studies. They provide uh, seminars and uh, programs in critical theory and psychoanalysis, uh, philosophy, literature, uh, even podcasting. In fact, I am uh, going to be one of their uh, instructors in the future. Um, I want to, to remind you that they have an accredited uh, BA and MA program. They're accredited in Europe and various countries. But even if you don't sign up to get an actual degree, their seminars and courses are well worth checking out and participating in. So take a look for the link to GCAS in the description for this video. Thanks.
all kinds of geographic obstacles that get in the way of the advance of armor and artillery, which has been the basis of both the Russian offensive and the Ukrainian um, forces defending. It's been a very conventional kind of World War II style, um, heavy firepower and large unit maneuver uh, type of conflict. The in rear areas on Russia at the beginning was moving very quickly down um, roads and other transportation corridors and not securing the rear areas, which led to significant losses by um, uh, smaller forces hitting um, convoys. The um, But since then, uh, there's been movement has been slow because a lot of infrastructure has been destroyed, uh, bridges, roads, roads have been blocked up with uh, rubble and um, destroyed vehicles, barricades are up. So often you um, either have to do heavy engineering work to restore transportation infrastructure or you go cross country and either way is going to um, be much, much lengthier than the um, early stages of the conflict or what a lot of observers have gotten used to from American war fighting, especially in the Middle East, where um, you can secure highways quickly to move your armor. And even if you can't, well, the desert actually doesn't create a tremendous amount of obstacles or difficulties for uh, appropriately prepared um, heavy vehicles. So, so yeah, uh, very slow. Any truth in Russian claims of Ukrainian war crimes in the Donbass? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know if they mean in 2014 and, and since then or, or now. If they mean now, then, yeah, Ukrainian forces there are, are still kind of just indiscriminately shelling um, civilian areas. Though, obviously, the, <laughs> the Russians aren't deliberately targeting civilian areas, you assume, uh, with shelling but they still kill a lot more civilians than the Ukrainians do by deliberately targeting civilian areas of shelling. So it just depends how you look at, at, at war crimes. And um, but and the other question was about pushback inside Ukraine from the outlawing of um, opposition bodies. Uh, no, that hasn't been. Not even in Russian media, which I've been reading, reading a lot recently, and not really even from the parties themselves. I think everyone is just trying to avoid a treason trial. <laughs> There's lots of people that are on treason trial right now. I think well, it's about 6,000 trials. And one problem with um, looking for domestic political movement in either Russia or Ukraine is that these countries, um, their cultural perspective on national warfare is these. this is sort of the greatest, most patriotic thing you can do to, to fight a people's war against uh, a dangerous, threatening enemy. So many Ukrainians who have, if you're a Ukrainian with anything short of very strong um, pacifist or very strong um, sort of Russian-leaning orientation, it's your entire acculturation has primed you to support a leader like Zelensky in this type of conflict. Um, the remember, right? 
there's a cult, just like in the United States with Memorial Day and with um, Veterans Day and with all of the sort of crypto militarization of uh, American national identity, civic identity, civic institutions um, around the, you know, you got to support the troops. The post-Soviet space has a counterpart um, ideology, a counterpart culture of the great patriotic war, of the heroic dead, of fighting Nazis, of fighting foreign aggressors. And I think this is one of the things that's kind of most offended Russians about what's happened in Ukraine since 2014. Uh, like Ukraine turned off all the uh, eternal flames on the war monuments. And you like occasionally you get videos of like um, some uh, veterans of the great patriotic war being like attacked by Nazis in Ukraine or kind of just kids doing like Hitler salutes to them. And I think this kind of stuff really, really horrifies Russians and a lot of Ukrainians too. Um, even if they, these instances weren't very frequent, but this thing is, is, is very important in Ukraine and in Russia. And we've seen a lot of it because obviously Monday was um, the day and it showed this kind of clash of narratives where Zelensky, um, there's all, there was always a possibility that he wouldn't try and claim it, that he'd say, no, like this is a, a, a Russian thing, it's not ours, but he, on the main 9th, tried to like, claim this day as Ukraine's victory day and to say, we beat the Nazis and now we're going to have two victory days once we defeat the Russians. And I was reading a Russian tabloid, it was very funny, saying like, uh, you don't have two victory days, you have got zero victory days. You don't have <laughs> ninth, and we're going to beat you. Fuck you, dickhead. Well, which, honestly, that captures uh, a great... That was 100% sincere, right? That was not propaganda. That was speaking from the heart. And it's not just Russia and Ukraine, either. The um, Russian ambassador to Poland, I believe, um, had red paint thrown over them when they were laying uh, wreaths on a World War II memorial in Poland. Um, And the because of the sacred place that um, Victory Day has in the Russian imagination. You're right. This is horrifying for um, Russians who don't have, it doesn't matter what your position is on Ukraine. It doesn't matter if you have any stake. It doesn't matter if you like Putin, you don't like Putin. This is a profound and disturbing um, insult, affront to the basis of your national pride and identity, uh, the gr- and, a great um, historical touchstone. On May 9th, it was the first time in the areas that Russia has taken from Ukraine where, you, where we've seen like a, an actual big public event since then. Well, apart from in Kherson, where there's been a, a cold protest of a few hundred people a few times against Russia, um, on Monday there were big demonstrations, one of the demonstrations, marches of, of thousands of people in basically all the main areas that Russia's taken in Kherson and uh, the Pira Oblast. And obviously, you know, you don't know how many of these people are local. All the Ukrainian Ukrainians were saying like, oh, Crimea must be empty today because you've lost all these people in. But obviously, according to the Ukrainians, Crimea is part of the Ukraine too. So, yeah. I'm not, not meaning to imply that these people were just desperately waiting for Russia to invade their country and blow up most of the place. But I think a lot of people were very eager to commemorate May 9th in a way that they weren't allowed to uh, since 2014. 
It's, and that's another problem with this, um, with the Western framing of this conflict, which writes out the significant pro-Russian minority that does exist in um, Ukrainian and within the borders of um, the officially international recognized borders of Ukraine, I guess is the way to put it. Um, in some ways, by pulling um, the Donbas and Crimea out of um, Ukraine's internal politics, Putin made the mistake that was a mistake because the most pro-Russian segments of Ukrainian society became voiceless. And it was very easy for um, Ukrainian governments or Ukrainian political parties, the far right, anybody who um, who presented themselves as spokesmen um, to say that they speak for all of Ukraine without reckoning at all with um, the interests of Crimeans, which that's a constituency that nominally they claim belongs to the Ukrainian nation or the Donbass or um, other uh, groups with um, more of an orientation towards um, Moscow than, than Kiev or more of a Russian identity than a Ukrainian identity. So Crimea came very close to refusing to like leave the Soviet Union at the end. Like the referendum where it was like everything was already closed. It was just like a confirmatory referendum. Crimea still got 45% to be in the Soviet Union, which is yeah. kind of, they'd be, if it was past 50 and they, it was somehow separated out, they would have been the last place left in the Soviet Union. The them and them and Kaliningrad could have formed a little club. Um, the yeah, and, Crimea being like another transistor or something like this was kind of something that you could see from 1990. Uh, and it, it took some very deft negotiations to prevent that from happening. Um, and the I don't even at that point too the authorities in Kiev right. This is the Kuchma period. This isn't. We're, we're very far away from right sector. We're very far away from Azov. I mean, the Ukrainian co Communist Party came first in 1994, 1998. Yeah, and the um, that it was a sort of post-Soviet um, grab for sort of resources and um, real estate. The Kiev government wasn't negotiating on the basis of Ukrainian um, nationalism for... Mm -hmm. Uh, control over, over Crimea. It was just like, Crimea is nice. It's rich. We want it. You know, and like, you guys can't leave. The rules say we own you. Um, and now that's morphed into an identitarian divide, right? That, um, yeah, because obviously the thing is, before 2014, 90% um, of Ukrainians were pro Russian. But that was because there wasn't a contradictory thing between being pro Russian and pro Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. And what happened? with the kind of, I don't know what to call Maidan, whatever Maidan was, mm. um, that on one side forced a lot of people to choose between Russia and Ukraine, and then Russian intervention forced things on the other side. And so both sides kind of forced at the same, well, one caused by the other, trying to force people to say Ukraine or Russia, and in the end, obviously, most, most people chose Ukraine, but a significant minority even the areas still controlled by the Ukrainian government on February 27th would have liked to otherwise. And 
that's the um and i think that one lesson that this conflict has for um the left leftist observers um or sort of anybody who's trying to make sense of nation formation um and internal political dynamics is that you don't need to have a majority of a given population mobilized for national independence or around a national cultural or ethnic identity. Um, it starts with small, dedicated, ideologically uh, motivated, but coherent and capable groups that create um, forcing mechanisms to get the majority on side with their um, national project. And the um, far right in Ukraine went from being a very small minority, disempowered, to being able to entrench themselves within the Ukrainian state and now um, drive a lot of the national myth-making and narrative formation about what it means to be Ukrainian, what Ukraine is transhistorically. Um, and that's, this is, this is dangerous because, um, to transpose this to, um, you know, Western Europe or the United States, we have, you've got large white populations that don't really make that racialized ethnic identity, the cornerstone of their mobilization or their, um, sense of who they are or their uh, projects politically, but you have minority groups that that's all they can think about. And if the far right, for instance, after this shooting in, um, in Buffalo with moves like that, it's attempts to produce that kind of forcing mechanism, which would take, um, large portions of a relatively inert and unmobilized population and get them to commit one way or another to that identity and thus shift politics from um, a class basis or a civic basis or um, sectoral regional interests into this ethnic frame that, um, that is central to their particular project. Should we then talk about Avastol? Yeah, let's get, let's get to Avastol. Avastol. So, to make clear the situation, um, within the city of Mariupol, which is now the city, all residential areas are in the hands of Russia and have been for now some time, a month or more. And, and the ports, the city center administrative buildings. And they're, they're working on reconstruction. Kids are going back to school. I've been reading a lot of Russian propaganda. Um, water got fixed a couple of days ago. Gas is still working on it. You know, yeah, sorry. Russians have relit the eternal flames everywhere. Um, but they, because the, they've blown up all the gas mains in most places, they're all running on fucking canisters, which is just a fucking ridiculous post-Soviet bullshit. Of, everyone's a pygmy, you know? Um, but Avastol is one of the kind of wonders of Soviet engineering placed within the city of Mariupol. Um, it's the biggest steel plant in the world, as far as I'm aware. 
uh, I don't. No, no, no. That the greatest, steel, uh, the largest steel plant in the world is the uh, former Vladimir Ilyich um, Ulyanov Lenin Ironworks in Krakow, Poland. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm sure there's also Nazis in Krakow. There's also Nazis in Krakow. <laughs> so I'm sure if the Russians ever did try to take it. It would take them about a year to get that done. Um, so after all the residential areas were captured, the Azov Battalion, as well as kind of remnants of various marine units um, and police units and so on, there's basically remnants of three or four battalions of, of, of troops there, but mostly that is of the Azov Battalion, have withdrew to this massive steel plant, which is obviously this massive catacomb, basically, of underground structures, which is incredibly difficult to penetrate militarily. Um, and, so fight, and so in order to get its Donbass offensive going, which hasn't really got very far, but whatever, um, Russia withdrew kind of most of their forces from Mariupol and have just been kind of bombing the area and trying to, and just basically starving Azov out. Though to get some civilians, they gave Azov a lot of food last week. Um, Russian nationalists were really fucking angry. Um, well, the food was all poison. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, Azov are holding out, they're holding out there, they're, they're kind of, they're asking Israel for rescue, they're asking Turkey for rescue. The Pope. The Pope. Um, they, they had a call out, they had a shout out on Eurovision, asking on stage after they won, the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian musicians were like, we need to get help to our heroes in Azov's stall. But they're refusing to surrender. Um, and as of the 14th of May, this is their last update of what they've said. They said that they've lost access to drinking water and now it is boiling random puddles they find. They're nearly out of food and say they'll soon be kind of trying to trap rats and birds. And all the corpses they're surrounding by, they're surrounded by so many corpses that the decomposing elements or like releasing fumes which are making them all ill. So they're in conditions which are just incredibly bad, but are yet refusing to surrender. And this is a massive pain in the arse for Russia. Yes, the and that's the thing too. Uh, like you pointed out, um, the Ukrainian Marines just surrendered when they were surrounded. When they ran out of ammunition, they. Excuse me, my friend Aiden. I hope you're well. Yeah, I. That's. Um, I think that if you um, can convince the Russians that you're not a Nazi, yeah. then they'll probably, it's in their interests to um, avoid. I mean, the Dontesk guys have charged him with something, but I think the Russian respect for the Dontesk uh, legal system is very, very low down their priority list. Yeah. The, um, I, the, that's another interesting question. To what extent does um, to what extent does Russia use the uh, Donetsk People's Republic, the Lugansk People's Republic, as their administrative vehicle for territory in the Donbass? And to what extent is it just being handled by the Russian military directly? Um, the like you said, 
Russia proper doesn't have a tremendous amount of respect for the sovereignty of, well, I mean, the, for of anybody pretty much, but certainly yeah. not LPR, DPR, right? Um, so, um, but in any case, the Azov Steel holdouts at this point, um, since they've not only been, um, a lot of them belong to the Azov Battalion, but um, they've made such a headache for Russia that they can expect no mercy if they um, fall into the hands, if they fall into the custody of um, Russian forces, which, you know, I mean, that is literally war, right? Uh, if you're a whole... Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if, I mean, Russia will probably shoot at least some of them, but I think 100% the Azov guys think they're going to die if they surrender, and that's why they're not. And that's part, partly to do with their own propaganda, but also to do with Russian propaganda. Yes, and the um, similarly, if you the the, the conventional um, solution to this type of siege would be just surrender to the Russians, right? Uh, the in theory, the Geneva Conventions would apply, and um, if you are guilty of war crimes, well. That's that's a separate matter that you probably shouldn't have done the war crimes then. Um, yeah, I mean, Russia will definitely try people because Ukraine has been has tried at least one captured Russian soldier. Yes, and um, the it's unclear to me why anyone would um, would expect um, why any Ukrainian would expect that. Um, third-party neutral countries would risk um, direct conflict with Russia to rescue a bunch of... I mean, Azov's self-perception is very strange. I don't really, I don't understand it. I saw one kind of Russian nationalist um, people on Twitter saying that kind of, they think that Azov have this kind of impression of themselves because since 2014, everything's worked out for them. And they never, they've never, they've been able to get away with everything. Like when they've committed crimes and they've had like members arrested, they've always been able to get them out and stuff like this. Like from 2014 to 2022, they've always got their way. Like they lost in the elections and stuff like that. But in terms of interacting with kind of institutions and states, they've always got their way. And so they're yeah. saying, yeah, maybe NATO has been happy to arm them, right? Yeah. They, um, they seem to have no problem. Ukraine even did this helicopter thing. Where they they like sent helicopters, loads and loads of helicopters, which all just got fucking shot down, to resupply Azov during the later stages of the battle, which is not a military advisable thing at all, but was done to kind of satisfy them. Yeah, and um, one, I get the sense that Zelensky is unable to say no because of the. Um, because of the position that Azov enjoys in, um, as you know, hero, heroic defenders of the Ukraine. Um, but it's um, not militarily advisable. Like that, those helicopters should have been taking, uh, should have been removing people to try to um, 
at this point, limit Ukrainian losses in Azov and um, Mariupol. The I think I don't that know how many losses are like well, six thousand, eight thousand, ten thousand, all told. In um, at Mariupol. Yes, there's at least four battalions, and as well as companies of, of special police. Yeah, the and that's all going to be a write-off too. Um, yeah, all those battalion groups are going to be one hundred percent destroyed, killed, and captured. No one broke out of zero. Yeah, the um, which is why there's so much pressure on some kind of diplomatic solution to um, allow these fighters on humanitarian grounds to pull back into. Ukrainian held territory, but there's also no incentive for Russia to um, and being cooperate with them. To definitely not do that. Like, um, yeah. that would be the that would be the kind of thing that would get people protesting on the streets of Moscow. Yes, that would happen. be exactly. It would be um, you're not going to get peace protests. You're going to get like insufficient war protests. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's another um, another place that we could talk about um, sort of what has happened that we didn't expect and maybe discuss one of the blind spots of leftist uh, strategic analysis. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what you mean, but I didn't expect there to be any peace movement in Russia and there hasn't been, apart from like a yeah. uh, No, um, what I mean is that um, I was talking to Ben Burgess um, and Sorry? Yeah, sorry, John. Oh, and he um, he was pointing out that um, supporting a uh, sort of losing or doomed uh, defensive struggle, um, the United States pouring weapons to, to sort of shore up Ukraine in order to extend the war and um, make the uh, losses on both sides just mount higher and higher and higher is not really doing a favor for the Ukrainians. Right? I mean, uh, one of the most mind-boggling things of this, it felt like everyone in 2014 said, like, let's pause, let's stop, let's come back in eight years when so many more of us will die on both sides over the same thing. The, um, that's the thing. And you had all of these abortive um, peace efforts, which I think floundered more than anything because both sides approached them in bad faith. And the, to a certain well, extent, unrealistic demands. Yes. The, um, you, each side makes unrealistic demands and then fails to live up to the minimum requirements that have been placed on them. And I think that this partly may have to do with. Um, a kind of distaste for American brokered uh, unilateralist peace deals of the post-communist, uh, post-Cold War era. Yeah, um, last time people had like a peace agreement where both sides had to like actually compromise and one side had just won. Because um, Iran-Iraq was a draw, but I don't, did they even make peace? Uh, that's an excellent question. I I don't think so. I think they ended up making peace after two, 2003 when you had a successor um, government to Saddam. Yeah, in, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, they just took, they just kept, on both in both times, they just kept whatever the borders were at the last moment of fighting. 
the um, the Good Friday Agreement, probably. Um, the yeah, that was a genuine a genuine peace. Uh, obviously, it wasn't against a conventional force. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it wasn't against conventional force. And we'll we'll see what happens with that um, now that. The IRA is the as the majority party in Northern Ireland. Um, well, they're probably higher in the south. So, sorry, they're probably even higher in the south. Yes, um, the and um, the um, it seems like another situation in which um, the conflict was frozen for a period of time. Um, it looked like there might be, there was a path to a durable peace, but it led through the EU. And now all of that is up in the air. Um, in any case, but Gruber, the, mm-hmm. you're, you're saying all this stuff about, you know, we're never going to have a peace deal because both sides have honest demands. I've been watching the Western news and it seems to me Ukraine's going to win. So I don't mm-hmm. know. About that. Yeah, exactly. You don't need a peace deal. You just need somebody to accept the surrender. Um, and that's, another major obstacle to any kind of peace deal. The fact that you have um, these uh, optimistic, maybe even triumphalist narratives uh, going through um, all of the media, which make any concession seem treasonous, premature, um, and uh, like a capitulation. So... So it's it's not so from both Western media and Ukrainian sources. There's basically been like a, a voluntary self-censoring, well as as well as explicit censoring in Ukraine, where it was made illegal a few weeks into the war to film any basically any missile missiles landing, any destroyed uh, war material of the Ukrainian side. Obviously, feel the free. <laughs> you find a Ukraine a fucking Russian tank blowing up, take it from a thousand angles, give it to a farmer, get it to like drive it down one road, then up another. Yeah. But from the impression of what's the kind of the series of um, mobilizations of reserves, um, the recent law passed, which allows territorial units to be deployed to other areas of, of Ukraine, as well as a couple of videos I saw of from Russian, from Ukrainian soldiers, who are basically like remnants of, of companies complaining like Donbass, like we're getting absolutely torn apart. We're just getting random replacements who are being like picked up. Like one of the guys in the unit was like, yeah, I was a combat unit. I was a combat medic in a unit of, of, of leave, in leave, love. And one day I was just fucking dumped in, in Donbass. Um, as well as the kind of recent statements, which were kind of celebrated in the West um, by... The defense minister said that we're going to put guns in the hands of a million people. If you're winning, you don't say that. If you're you're not mass conscripting a civilian population, when you, like if if Ukraine is going to do it's going to just beat the Russians conventionally, you don't need to do that because you, these guys are going to be useless on the offensive, right? These guys will be well, and I imagine probably they'll start with women also. Um, they're, they're not going to be forming like mechanized units with NATO weaponry and, you know, forming new fucking tank units. They're going to be territorial units that are trying to hold territory. In yeah, the it's, it's the last days of the Third Reich. You know, you throw the Hitler Jugend and the old men um, into the 
wheels under the wheels of Russian tanks just to buy yourself some more time. It's not to say that Russian casualties have been low. They haven't been at all. But the thing that we're comparing here is one country is through several stages of mobilization has deployed, has, has, like its professional army is fully engaged, completely, completely fully engaged, large, large parts of it destroyed, has gone through most of its reservists now, and is now de- kind of recruiting people which aren't reserves, reservists, but are basically new volunteers, you know, old people, young people who haven't been through the Ukrainian conscription system. Uh, and the other country, Russia, is has taken a lot of losses, but these are losses of its professional mobile units, while kind of its whole network of currently active conscripts, its kind of non-mobile professional units, its reservists have all been completely untouched. And obviously the question is, will Russia turn this into from a special operation to a war and deploy these units? But we're certainly not a, a, a kind of thing of like, it's just not equal, you know? And this is why specific events can be extraordinarily dangerous. Recently, as the front has been moving around the city of uh, uh, Chernigov, or uh, sorry, Kharkov, the fighting has been pushed towards the border, uh, the international border, and um, Ukrainian forces have made strikes artillery strikes into Russian territory, leading to the death of a civilian, uh, seven others wounded, the destruction of um, civilian homes and vehicles, uh, about 10 kilometers within Russian uh, borders. And this event has been reported on in the international press. It's not a big story in Russia yet. And I think that has to do with the fact that um, the government does not want to necessarily turn this into a people's war yet. That um, well, if it's another thing, I think we said about this last time, but Putinism doesn't want public activation, mm-hmm. even if that activation is on its side, because it kind of starts, it lets demons out. As you can see, by all these kind of all these Russians, you're just whipping out the Soviet flags once again to Ukraine. That's not something the government of, of Russia wants. It doesn't want to harken back to any historically better or, or whatever era um, because it seems quite shit in comparison. Um, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't like, like, I think this is the real problem of calling like, uh, of, of Russia like fascist in any way, as opposed to like a Napoleonic uh, authoritarian state. It doesn't want mass activation. It doesn't want people's war, even if it's for them. And if they do go for this, it'll be because of their kind of strategy has, has failed. Yes, it'll be a, a move of desperation. The um, Putin government has always been about an, anesthetizing the public to the greatest extent possible, keeping them docile and quiet and um, harmless. The risk of a general mobilization of turning this into a real people's conflict is that you don't know what the people are going to do. 
Um, there are many reasons why the people might not like you. Um, and the energy in, um, to the extent that there's any kind of grounds, ideological groundswell in Russia is on the side of like their own Nazis, right? Um, I wish that it was, uh, you had some kind of neo-Bolsheviks that you could point to, but the reality is that, um, if you engage the Russian public and you ask for volunteers and you call upon patriotism, you're going to get Russian Nazis fighting Ukrainian Nazis. One of the interesting things, there was only four members of the Duma who made a complaint publicly about the operation. Uh, they were all members of the Communist Party, uh, but their complaint was, I voted for a war in Donbass. I didn't vote for an operation in Kiev. Why are we in Kiev? We should withdraw from Kiev. And this has happened, um, not obviously because these communist uh, members of the Duna complained, but it's interesting that kind of this more limited war is 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 more acceptable to kind of the factions because there aren't people, you know, there's no significant constituency in Russia who wants Russia to lose because Russians see themselves as of having lost for 30 or more years and being a nation which is kind of on the precipice. And if they lose again, they don't imagine that kind of, that'll be, they don't imagine that peace will come from losing in Ukraine, but rather what will happen is there'll be war in Russia. Like it's a, it's, it's a, a very convincing to Russians and probably largely true that if we don't fight them over there, they'll, they'll fight us here. And one thing that we haven't discussed, um, which, also is a, a major factor here is the um, involvement of NATO and the West. Um, so when I look at some Russian sources, they talk about a Nazi liberal axis in Ukraine that... Um, yeah, I mean, as of Eurovision, who would expect it? You couldn't have seen that coming four months no, ago. No, the... Um, it's or right petitioning Israel to save our valiant Nazi soldiers. Right? Yeah, exactly. And the the funny thing is, like, it's because game recognized game, right? Like the Israelis are also very effective nationalist, um, uh, repressive, um, sort of like violent um, danger types. So, yeah, there's going to be a certain amount of professional respect between the two sides, even though nominally the identities should be uh, one counter to one another. I don't think Israel actually is going to do anything or was at all receptive to save our Azov boys. But the fact that that was a target of um, the appeals is, uh, is notable. And um, the one... Um, question is to what extent is the ukrainian resistance effective because of western intelligence or western um material that's coming in and i think that judging by the the reports that were leaked into the press and the hurried denials of those reports um western intelligence has played a key role in things like the um 
killing it's of generals. Kind of how leaky Western intelligence is. Like, obviously, only after stuff has happened, but they they can't help but gossip about all the bullshit they've done. Which makes me um, when I read those reports, it takes me back to my time in DC where it all comes down to um, budget debates. You know, how do we get another $10 billion into our department? Um, And how do we um, shut up the people who want to defund us or um, that are, you know, busy? I mean, people must be insanely horny for fighting the Russians on like an effective and emotional level. Oh, yeah. It's also um, for the Department of Defense. There's, you know, oh, my God, it's a clean war against like a a worthy adversary. It's um, the Top Gun movie turned, you know, came out a little too soon. Right. They should have waited until until you could have. uh, Are they fighting Russians in that? No, they're fighting Chinese, but they should have been fighting Russians over uh, like the Black Sea. You know, they could have been sinking the Moskva, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And yeah, exactly. And the uh, flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet was sunk um, as a through a combination of um, guided missiles, drones, and Western intelligence. And that package of adopting adapting existing technology, sometimes even civilian technology, you could just get off of Amazon with um, the intelligence gathering and uh, analysis uh, capabilities of NATO. Um, It's definitely been a good war for drones, not so much as combat drones, but just as incredibly effective spotters, especially in relatively static urban combat. Yep. Um, Not just as spotters too, but the, the drone footage then becomes an important propaganda tool. And the um, we were talking about this before we went on, but in some ways, the war in Yemen anticipated some of these developments 